You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 75. Hello again, Metamorphs. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. Chris Lester here, ready to deliver you another dose of fresh new audio fiction. You can find more of my work at metamorecity.com and chrislester.org. But for now, let's get started with this week's story. Today I'm bringing you the second part of Chapter 22 in my Metamore City novel, Things Unseen. If you aren't caught up with all the previous installments of this story, you're going to want to stop here until you're up to date. The following recap will contain major spoilers. Catherine Catane, David Silverleaf, and their Lightbringer escorts have just had a firefight with agents of the Vampire Crime Syndicate. In the VIP parking garage under the Citadel, our heroes were delayed when the garage's guard was missing from his post. Then the lights went out, and a hidden sniper started firing at them. Janus Starson took two high-powered rifle bullets to the gut, the second of which broke through his body armor and shredded his internal organs. Kate gave him first aid, and then went on the hunt for their attackers, using a custom veil spell to make herself mostly invisible. While David tried to flank the sniper, Kate went after the man's partner, a spotter who had to be hidden somewhere close. With help from Valerie, the Lightbringer medic, Kate succeeded in flushing out the hidden syndicate operative, a blonde woman in a black bodysuit and tactical vest. While the woman was focused on attacking Valerie, Kate took careful aim under her veil and put two bullets in the back of the agent's head. Soon thereafter, they discovered that the sniper had fled the scene, leaving his rifle behind. With the immediate danger past, Valerie and Agent Kelsey Stanton turned their attention to saving Janus. Kate was left to guard the Lightbringer's armored van, where Sefi Hinlasos had remained safely inside during the fighting. Standing there, Kate is forced to confront the body of the woman she killed, a woman whose face is now missing, thanks to Kate's actions. Kate responds to the dead woman with immediate, visceral anger and disgust. As she examines the body, she discovers that it is equipped with some kind of technomagical stealth system. This may explain how the shooters were able to infiltrate the Citadel without Kaya stopping them. She also discovers that the woman's body is covered with vampire bite scars. The woman was a thrall, a human servant whose will had been dominated and reshaped by the Syndicate. Kate is furious with the woman for being so stupid. Everyone knows what the vampires do to you if they get you. David tries to comfort Kate to reassure her that taking a life is never easy, but all Kate can see is what a terrible waste it all was. After hearing the firefight on an open comm system, Majestrix Kaya gives our heroes clearance down to the catacombs that lead to the Nexus. Meanwhile, deep under the Citadel, Morgan Drowling and Misty Halloway wait in the Nexus chamber itself, hoping against hope that Kaya's power is enough to save their friend, Julia Mathias. Things Unseen A novel of Metamore City 
written and read by Chris Lester. Chapter 22. Continued. Is it working? Misty opened her eyes and looked over her shoulder at Morgan. What, can't you feel it from back there? Morgan shifted uncomfortably on the stone floor, unfolding and refolding her legs. What I'm feeling is rather complicated at the moment. She held up her hands before the radiance of the nexus, let the apparent sunlight warm them in a way she hadn't felt in years. She felt that power drawing her, beckoning her, the power of life, inviting her to rejoin with it, to be part of the whole once again. But she also felt the core of magic inside her, the dark essence that fed on blood and gave her strength and immortality in return. That power shrank from the power of the Nexus, its antithesis and bright reflection. Yes, she could rejoin the whole, become part of the cycle of life and death once again. But she knew which part of that cycle she belonged to now. If the power of undeath were taken from her, her body would repay the forces of time and decay with accelerated interest. She stayed put at the edge of the room, far away from that siren song of vital destruction. The nexus appeared as a column of white light that stretched from floor to domed ceiling, ten meters high and two meters across. Omega had explained that this was only the most direct intrusion of the nexus into three-dimensional space, and revealed no more of its true nature than a cross-section of a person's finger would reveal about the person. It still looks like a cheap special effect, Misty had complained. Nevertheless, she had stepped into the light and laid Lady Julia down inside it. Her expression had changed as the nexus touched her, though, and by the time she stepped out again, her scaly hide was literally glowing with health. Now she sat cross-legged before the nexus, on a gray stone floor that encircled it to a distance of about thirteen meters— Many of the stones bore carvings, pictographs, from a language that Morgan had never seen or even heard of before. The inscriptions ran in concentric rings around the nexus, with stretches of bare stone between them. When Morgan asked, Omega said they were too old for him to read either. The walls of the chamber rose two meters on all sides of the room, with eighteen arched doorways spaced evenly around it. Above the doorways, the ceiling curved upward into the smooth dome of stone overhead. The walls between the doorways bore crude, ancient paintings in red and brown, a striking contrast to the sophisticated architecture around them. The paintings were simple and exaggerated. An archer, a warrior with a spear and shield, a bearded man on a throne, a wide-hipped woman with large breasts, and fourteen others. Morgan strongly suspected that they were icons of the gods, and that this chamber had served as a temple for the first people of Metamore. Perhaps Kaya had formed it for that very purpose. Morgan sat in front of the image of a woman with two large wolves, which she supposed was the icon of Mother Lilith, the creator of the vampire race. 
She thought the radiant intensity of the place felt slightly less overwhelming there, though that could have been her imagination. Omega stood beside her, silent and watchful. She folded her hands in her lap and waited. Misty closed her eyes again. I can feel her body growing stronger, she said. But she was close to gone when we got here. It's going to take a while. You can't take a starving man and stuff him full of burgers. Morgan reflected that you could take a starving vampire and stuff him full of blood, but she decided not to share this observation. After a while, Omega stirred, the symbol on his chest glowing faintly. He turned, placed a hand against the stone, and cocked his head as if listening for something. Is something wrong? Morgan asked. Omega straightened, then carefully drew his sword. Perhaps. Something strange has happened in the citadel. A life has been taken, yet while the death was sensed by Kaya, the life that preceded it was not. Morgan frowned, trying to parse the odd phrasing. Somebody died who wasn't actually alive. Like, say, a vampire? No, Omega said. Your kind have a form of life, dark life though it is. Kaya can sense you as well as any mortal. The one who died was alive, yet hidden from her sight until the moment of death. Misty looked back at them, interested. What does that mean? I do not know. Has anything like this ever happened before? Omega's hands tightened on the sword hilt. Yes. Once. Morgan and Misty exchanged a look. When? Morgan asked. And who did it? In the year 706 of the Christos Reckoning, it was the deed of six Moranasi, in alliance with the Dark Lord Nasage. Morgan suddenly felt very cold. What's a Moranasi? Misty asked. Shadowbringers, Morgan said quietly. Servants of Baal, before Morai cast him down. Priests of darkness and tyranny. She looked up at Omega. Supposedly extinct. And extinct in truth, to the best of Kaya's knowledge, Omega said. Mortals die. Knowledge lives on. Someone figured out what they did, Morgan said. Or something close to it. Misty looked uneasy. With guys like that behind it, I'm guessing this is pretty black magic we're talking about? None blacker, Omega agreed. The first time it required human sacrifice, in a manner most disturbing. Misty grimaced. Gotcha. So, not just somebody who doesn't want Kaya peeking in the shower. This is not good, Morgan agreed, getting to her feet. Omega, where did this happen? Omega bowed his head, touched the wall, and listened again. Under the western minaret, a waiting chamber for vehicles. It is a highly secure area. Not secure enough, apparently, Morgan muttered. Who killed this mysterious intruder? An officer of the law, Omega said. One yet unknown to me, but perhaps not to you. She and her companions are coming here bringing one like Lady Julia. They wish her to bathe in the Nexus. Now Misty was on her feet as well. 
Sefi? They were supposed to bring her to the Lightbringers. Why are they coming here? An agent of the Lothanasi is with them. Apparently, the woman was already beyond their aid, as was Lady Julia. How are they getting here? Morgan asked. I'll go and meet them. If there was one of these invisible agents, there could be others. Omega pointed to a doorway, between the icons of what Morgan guessed were Suspira and Valena. Follow the path over three bridges, then turn left at the first crossroads. A new passage has been made for them down to the catacombs. But be cautious, Lady Drawling. The waters are full of life, and deadly to your kind. Morgan quickly bowed to him in thanks, and took off running along the path he had indicated. It was longer than she had expected from the description, running alongside an underground river that meandered back and forth on its way to the lake they had encountered earlier. The bridges carried the path from one side of the river to the other to avoid various obstructions, mostly outcroppings in the rock that protruded into the current or hung too low from the ceiling. There were no modern lights along the trail, but crystals extruded from the walls and ceiling and emitted a faint green glow. Morgan really, really hoped that was an enchantment of some kind, and that the rocks weren't fluorescing in response to some massive source of radiation. Not that it would probably hurt her if the caves were radioactive, but it could certainly hurt Kate. Kate. If Morgan had understood Omega correctly, Kate had just killed someone. A person, not a monster. There would be consequences for that, both professionally and psychologically. Morgan had no doubt that Kate would be vindicated, however it had happened, but there would be a cost. Morgan knew of cops who had ended their own lives after taking another's, a twisted sort of penance for their perceived sins. Morgan wouldn't let that happen to Kate. Not ever. After the third bridge, the path bent upward and away from the river. She passed out of the Hewn Rock Tunnel, up a steep hill, through an archway, and into a room of mortar and cut stone. The room was lined with skulls, set into recesses in the walls, and more pictographic writing had been chiseled into the stones. Evidently, the first people of Metamore had buried their dead in these catacombs, rather than burning them, like those who came later. Lighting now came from orbs of polished stone, mounted on pillars, which glowed with a soft yellow-pink light. Each orb illuminated itself when she came close to it, and turned dark again after she had passed it. Motion-sensitive lighting for the Bronze Age. Morgan followed a staircase up to a long hallway, which stretched forward another hundred meters. Here at last was the intersection Omega had mentioned. Three identical-looking passages, stretching forward, left, and right. She turned left and continued on. Evidently, this was a continuation of the catacombs, and the size of them was alarming. Skulls and presumably burial inscriptions continued to decorate the walls. Lighter patches of brick showed where chambers in the walls had been sealed up years after the original construction. Some of these had crumbled away, revealing dark chambers filled with skeletons, lying in neat slots in the walls. Most of their heads had been removed. A precaution against vampires, perhaps? Morgan wasn't sure. 
More intersections followed every 30 or 40 meters, each of them indistinguishable from the last. The number of bodies buried down here, the sheer span of time they represented, was beyond even Morgan's ability to estimate. After passing six identical intersections, she saw another patch of light appear in the distance. She slipped into the shadows at intersection number seven, held completely still so that the motion lights went out, and waited. A lightbringer came first, a tough-looking blonde woman, with a pistol in one hand and a long knife in the other. She moved as quickly as she could without losing her companions, but she was on high alert against an ambush. Behind the lightbringer came Kate and David, pushing Lady Sephra on a medical gurney. Oh, that would be fun on the trip downstairs. Morgan hoped they had been able to take a lift most of the way. David pulled on the front end of the gurney, lifting it over or steering it around the larger pieces of rubble. And Kate... Kate's eyes were hard, empty blanks. Cold, indignant anger stiffened her neck and tightened her jaw. Every step was crisp, abrupt, fueled by nothing but will and determination. Here and there she stumbled over a stone, cursing under her breath when she did so. "'Hello, darlings.' Morgan stepped out of the shadows before they got too close, so as to avoid startling the lightbringer. Even so, the woman snapped her gun toward Morgan's head. "'Stand down, Agent Stanton,' David said. "'She's a friend.' The lightbringer narrowed her eyes. "'She's a vampire.' "'And yet,' Morgan said. "'This is Dr. Morgan Drowling,' David said. Agent Stanton's face brightened then. "'Oh!' She lowered her gun, then nodded at Morgan. "'Sorry, ma'am. Um, nice to finally meet you.' "'Likewise,' Morgan said, dryly. Kate's eyes focused on her then, looking at a spot somewhere around Morgan's chin. She didn't look as happy to see her as Morgan would have liked. "'What are you doing here, Morgan? Where's Julie and Misty?' "'Down below,' Morgan said, tilting her head back down the passage." It's not an easy trip. I thought you might need another pair of hands. You shouldn't have left them, Kate snapped. Somebody just tried to kill Sefi. There's probably more of them. Yes, we heard. She let her friend's anger wash over her, unperturbed. It wasn't for her, and eventually Kate would remember that. They aren't alone. The Majestrics gave us an escort. And we think it's in everyone's best interests if we get her there as soon as possible. She gestured at the woman on the gurney. May I? Kate stared at her chin for a moment longer, then huffed and turned away from the gurney, raising her hands palm outward. Fine, do it. She withdrew a few paces away and crossed her arms. Morgan came up alongside the gurney. She looked at David. The elf's face was a mask of neutrality, but his eyes looked pained. He met Morgan's gaze, immune to its psychic power, and therefore unafraid of it. He gave her a brief nod of thanks. Carefully, Morgan felt Lady Sephra's body with the back of her hand. She was feverishly hot, but nothing like the condition Julia had been in. 
Morgan chalked that up to the difference in their psychic abilities. She lifted Sephra from the gurney and placed her in a fireman's carry. The woman's hair was ridiculously long and cumbersome, but David helped Morgan wrap it around her body so that only about a half a meter of it was trailing over Morgan's shoulder. They moved much more swiftly after that. The girl's weight was negligible for Morgan, and she had traveled this route once already. Agent Stanton took the lead, with direction from Morgan right behind her. Kate walked stiffly behind Morgan, with David acting as rear guard. The people you fought in the garage, Morgan said. Any idea who they were working for? Syndicate, Kate growled. The one I took out was a thrall. And the vamps know about Sephi's visions. Visions? She sees the future. Or futures, I guess. It's complicated. That surprised Morgan, but not as much as it might have. At least it explained why Misty had been so quiet about her condition. How did they know? Morgan asked. Captured and tortured her, Kate said. We just got her out, maybe an hour ago. Morgan almost tripped over her own feet. Blood and ashes, she murmured. They paid for it, Kate said darkly. But it looks like Malcolm decided to just kill her. If he can't have her, no one else can either. I'd sure as hell like to know who let those bastards pass security. Morgan nodded. If it's a syndicate strike team, there will be more of them. At least five. Possibly a good deal more. I know. Kate put her hand to her gun, twitched her fingers away again. But the Majestrix is helping now. She'll keep them off our backs. Um, yes, about that. Morgan told her what Omega had said about the masking enchantment. Kate made a fist and struck the wall as she passed. I knew something felt wrong. Damn it. They could be coming behind us right now. They had Sefi for hours. They probably have plenty of material for a tracking spell. Odds are, Morgan agreed. I don't suppose either of you can manage a non-detection spell. Not here, David said. In a forest, yes, but we're a little far outside my element. Kate shook her head. Abjuration's an earth school, not my strong suit. She narrowed her eyes and peered ahead down the passage. We can't lead them back to the Nexus. There's no telling what they could do to Kaya from there. We've got to hold them until the rest of the Lightbringers get here. We need a defensible position. An idea dawned on Morgan. I think we have one. She led them to the intersection where she had first turned left. Coming at it from this side, there was no way to distinguish it from the ones before or behind it. The staircase couldn't even be seen from this distance. Set up your defense here, Morgan advised them. After this, it's one long walk straight to the Nexus, so no one will be able to loop around behind you. If things get too heavy, pull back to the staircase. Kate nodded sharply took out her gun, checked the chamber and the safety. What about the way you came in? It's a very long walk, with a narrow bottleneck and nowhere to hide. If anyone comes that way, Omega and Misty and I should be able to hold them. Kate thought about this, then nodded again. All right. 
When Sefi and Julia are charged up, you meet us back here. If this Omega can talk to Kaya, I'm betting it can get us a way out of here that doesn't involve getting ambushed. Understood. Kate, be careful. I'm fine, Morgan, Kate said shortly, turning away from her. Just go. Morgan went. Lady Sephira did not stir, as Morgan carefully carried her down the staircase, through the tunnels, over the bridges, and back to the nexus. When she entered the chamber, though, she stopped short. Omega knelt on the floor of the chamber, pinning down a very angry Ezekiel Kapler. The scion's arms had been folded behind his back in a submission hold. His tentacles had wrapped around the automaton's arms and were trying to pull them loose, but against Omega's strength they had no discernible effect. Lord Ezekiel turned his huge black eyes toward Morgan and snarled. You! I should think that's my line, Morgan retorted. Now that she could see Ezekiel was in no danger of escaping, she carried Sethi over and handed her off to Misty, who placed her in the column of light alongside Julia. How did he get here? Tracked us by smell to hear him tell it, Misty said. Came down the staircase from the Hall of Remembrance. Thought he'd run in here, grab Julie, and pour it out. She grinned in fierce satisfaction. Then he found out Kaya blocks teleportation around the Nexus. He tried to run, but we caught him. Fucking bitch! Ezekiel growled. You're going to pay for this. I don't care who your father is. He's been going on like that for a while, Misty said, sounding bored. How far did you have to walk, anyway? You were gone for like half an hour. It's a bit of a hike, Morgan admitted. The others are guarding our exit. It looks like the syndicate is after Sephira. Misty's face darkened. Over my dead body? I think that was the plan, yes. Ezekiel abruptly went still. Wait a minute, wait a minute, he said, sounding confused. The syndicate is after Sephi? Why? She's nobody! Morgan sighed and rubbed the bridge of her nose. Because she can see the future, Ezekiel. Which fact you might have mentioned to me earlier, Misty. It's not exactly something we wanted to advertise, Misty said acidly. That's what happened to her? Ezekiel asked. Holy shit! Misty, do you realize what this means? Do you know what we could do with that kind of power? And that's why we didn't tell you, Misty snapped. Listen to yourself, Zeke. Sephi means more to me than any other person on this godsdamned planet. But to you, she's just another tool. Another pawn for your plans to upstage Daddy. She stalked over to him, got down on the ground, and stared him in the face. This is not a game, Zeke. This is not about your inheritance, or your dreams of becoming a psi, or whatever fevered conspiracy theories are rattling around in your petty, paranoid little mind. This is about saving Sefi's life, and Julia's life, and my life, before the power of the rift eats us from the inside out like it did to Hal and Bernie. And now it's apparently about stopping the vampires from killing us first. Or taking you for research. 
Morgan said. They probably wouldn't mind experimenting on you, if they could take you without anyone knowing about it. This doesn't make any sense, Zeke said, sounding almost plaintive now. My contact, he told me that Malcolm was working with the Lightbringers to get the rift away from my family. He showed me pictures of the meeting. And it never occurred to you that he was lying to you? Misty asked, incredulous. Zeke lowered his eyes. He's helped me before, he said, subdued. Three years now. Hells, he helped me set up the whole trip to the rift in the first place. The flights, the bribes, the security details, everything. I thought that was your plan, Misty said. Didn't you make a big deal about how it was your big, brilliant plan? Well, I had the idea, Zeke said. But he helped me with the details, you know? Ye gods, Morgan groaned. This has Westerson's fingerprints all over it. He probably thought he'd cause a big public scandal for House Kapler, and then Malcolm could use that to argue for voiding the entailment. And once Kapler's monopoly was gone, he'd just move right in, Misty said, nodding. You aren't fighting a conspiracy to steal the rift, Zeke. You're in the conspiracy. For a long moment, Ezekiel lay motionless. At last, he looked up at Misty, his dark eyes wide. Misty, I think I fucked up. Misty stared back wordlessly for a long moment. Then she sighed, shook her head, and let out a soft laugh. She patted his cheek with one clawed hand. Yeah, you did, Zeke. This whole thing was pretty much one big, giant fuck-up. Zeke's eyes flickered over to the Nexus. Are they gonna be all right? The vulnerability in his voice was almost childlike. I hope so, Misty said. They've got a chance, but we've got to give Kaya the time to heal them. We've got to keep those syndicate fuckers from hurting them. Anger flashed in Zeke's eyes, but this time it wasn't directed at Misty. Cold determination settled over his nightmare face. Let me up, he said. And that's the end of chapter 22. Sefi and Julia are safe, for now. But the Syndicate isn't giving up yet. In the depths of the Citadel, Kate, David, and Kelsey must hold the line against a team of highly trained killers. The action continues in two weeks. Sonobar Khan said... I write because it is the only way I can reach you. So, dear listeners, thank you for giving me permission to reach you. Here's your weekly writing report. This was not a good week for writing. I only managed to write 1,984 words this week, 
over the course of 3.5 hours, for an average writing speed of 567 words per hour. I wrote on four out of seven days this week. One of the things I've had to come to terms with over the last couple weeks is that I've been shortchanging myself on sleep in order to get more writing done. It's been going on long enough that it was affecting my performance at work. I made some mistakes on things I really shouldn't be making mistakes on at this point, and while none of them had serious consequences, it was still an important wake-up call. So now I'm making it a point to get to bed earlier on work nights, to make sure that I get seven to eight hours of sleep every night. Sometimes this means that the writing doesn't get done. On the plus side, I am feeling better and performing better, so hopefully that will translate to writing better once I figure out how to rearrange the rest of my schedule to make more time for it. I did go back to working on The Lost and the Least this week. I had gotten up to chapter 35 and realized that I'd dropped a couple of characters' storylines, so I ended up going back about five chapters and filling in the holes with some additional scenes. The manuscript is now over 117,000 words. This week I also had the privilege of interviewing Gail Carragher about her new novella, Romancing the Inventor. The interview is up on my YouTube channel now, and next week I'll be releasing it here on the podcast. The book is available for pre-order now, and it'll be released on November 1st. If you like vampires, intrigue, deep characterization, and lesbian romance, you've got to check it out. And if you don't like those things... Why on earth are you listening to Metamore City? The link will be in the show notes, so order your copy today. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is Fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Twitter handle is Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. If you like what I'm doing here and want to help me keep doing it, please make a monthly pledge at patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. The link will be in the show notes. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with my interview with Gail Carriger. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2013 and 2016 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.